word tells us that when we obey him, that the Father and the Son come and make their abode with us. And Jesus unpacks fully what that means and talking about the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we meet with God by our bedsides or maybe at the coffee table, wherever you pray and do your devotions. We meet with him in our cars on the way to work or at our desk, wherever we decide to bow our heads. The Lord meets with us there, but there is a way in which the Lord meets with us in the congregational context that is a unique provision of his presence that um, we ought not forsake. And therefore, the Bible tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do because there is something particular that God likes to do uh, in this setting. And we want to take full advantage of whatever that is. So um, let's go before God and um, declare our dependency on him and let's uh, open his word. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we declare that you are sovereign. You already knew that, Lord God. It's not uh, news for you, but Lord God, it's an announcement sometimes to our hearts that we needed to catch up to our theology. So we beg and ask, oh God, that you would help us to catch up. We hand our hearts over to you and ask us, Lord God, that you would rule over every distraction, every thought, every idea, Lord God, uh, impending task or to-do list or things that we planned for after service or stuff that we encountered on our way here or things that kept us awake last night. We pray, O oh God, that you would bring our hearts under arrest and give us a peace that surpasses all understanding and then speak to us clearly through your word. And in that word, oh God, you provide whatever it is that you so design, whatever is on the menu today, Lord God, you choose how you want to be glorified. And Lord God, we just want to be in the room as you do that. And so um, we repent, oh God, of any known sin, bring it clearly to our conscience that we would be swift to do that so that nothing would uh, inhibit our ability to hear uh, and apply your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 So if you were paying attention during the time of reading or just kind of some of the buildup to this, you know that we are yet in our second message in our series, Christ Above All or Christ Over All. Uh, it is brought to us or comes from the book of Colossians, which is incredibly compact. And I tell you, if I was stranded on a desert island and someone told me I couldn't take the entire Bible, but I could only have a couple of books or one book, I'm telling you, it'd be somewhere between Colossians and Psalms that I'd want with me. The reason I say that is because I've never seen a book so small, but yet super rich and dense in both deep theology and very detailed practicality. The book of Colossians provides us with some of the highest and richest Christology available in any other place in the Bible. Can you say that word, Christology? Yeah, yeah. So if you're interested in knowing more about Christology, we actually have a series of equipped classes available, and one of which is in session right now, our systematic theology series, uh, where we go through systematic theology, and, and under that umbrella, you learn some of these things. It isn't just about the terminology, but indeed, there is great, rich, and deep Christology in the book of Colossians. Why? What was going on in the church of Colossae that made this deep, rich theology of Christ, this high view of Jesus, necessary. A couple of things. There are three major strands of heresy at work. Um, not necessarily formal, like uh, we wouldn't call them formal agnosticism or anything like that. They hadn't reached that form. But what we did have was uh, a, a leaning toward uh, Oriental mysticism, Greek philosophy, and then asceticism. This kind of belief that erudite and high knowledge and immaterial things was better than things that are material. So things that are earthly and material and solid are inherently bad. And so the aesthetics would try to avoid anything physical or material. 
And then there was a pursuit of things that were very high, lofty, mysterious, and mystical, and believing that people who thought and functioned on that plane were somehow better than or superior to. And these were these, these kind of these three uh, heretical strands are at work within the church of Colossae. And so then the apostle Paul writes to them to give them a, a clear view of Christ to show how he is actually above and over all. That whether you're talking about the visible or the invisible, the material or the immaterial, that Jesus is over all of that. Whether you're talking about the philosophical or the ethical, the moral, Jesus is above and over all of that. And so this deep, rich theology or Christology that comes to us through the book of Colossians is designed to give us that. Now, you read or heard some of that, and I want to just kind of walk you through this real quick. Hear these words again from the passage, and then we're going to park right at verse 23 for something real particular. Hear Paul's words as he describes for us in detail this Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, for he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all the, his fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. And watch this in verse 23. This is the biggie because this is aimed right at you and me. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. So if the scriptures have placed all that on us to say, you need to remain rooted and grounded and not shifted away. You need to be steadfast and immovable. What exactly has God done to help us with that? What has he done? I mean, if you look at the particulars, right? Let's look at some of the particulars of what came out of that passage. You should be able to see them on the screen. Uh, how does God actually expect us to follow through on being steadfast? If he calls us to it, what is he doing to equip us to do it? So, so, so when we look at these, uh, these particulars, you can begin to just go through them one by one on the screen. Help me out there, uh, wing person. Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, right? What does that mean? So God's invisible, but when I look at Jesus, I'm seeing God. Okay, let's look at the next one. He is the firstborn of all creation. Keep going. Let's just roll them out. There are like 10 distinctives. All things have been created through him and, and for him. Keep going. Keep going. For he is before all things. Keep going. And then in him, all things hold together. Keep going. He is also the head of the body. He is the, he is the firstborn from the dead. And all his fullness and all the fullness of the Father dwells in him. To reconcile everything to himself by him. And then to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So, the Holy Spirit says all of that and it says, hey, I want you to remain steadfast, grounded, and not shifted. How do we do that? I mean, it's a lot of phrases and statements and a lot of distinctives about the Lord Jesus Christ, but how does all of that result in me being steadfast, rooted, and not shifted away from my hope in the gospel? How does it do it? Right? And so today, we're going to be talking about exactly how the Lord allows us to follow through in his command to be rooted and grounded, steadfast in the faith, and not shifted in any way from the hope of the gospel. But when you see all of that, like, I mean, that's staggering. I, I don't expect you to memorize all that, but what do we do with it? What do we do? How many of you um, 
I'm familiar with this, uh, this image coming up on the screen. Yeah, remember that? Growing up as a kid, man, this was almost like Jesus in a tube. You remember that? You remember Neosporin? I mean, you're, you're talking about everything from bug bites, nicks, scratches, bruises, stab wounds. I mean, just whatever. We, we might even forego going to the emergency room if we had enough Neosporin at the house. I mean, this was good stuff, right? It was like, where is the Neosporin? This, this, this gray, creamy, I don't know if it was creamy or oily. You couldn't even talk. I mean, whatever. Just where is the Neosporin? I'm hurt. My ankle is twisted. Bring out the Neosporin. But then flip it over on the back. Do you know what that is? Bactarazine, Zeke, um, Neomycin, Polymatmas, Mubisulfate, um, a unique blaze of cocoa butter, I know what that is. Uh, Cottonseed oil, olive oil, uh, sodium, pivirate, um, tolipipiral, acetate. And, and, and again, again, unless you've got MD after your name or some other credential, maybe RN, you have no idea what's on the back of that box. Well, in much the same sense that many of us don't have a fully developed Christology. We don't know what's on the back of the box. When it comes to understanding fully our Christ and looking at the book of Colossians and all that heavy list of things that the Lord said about him, some of it you can't pronounce, and even if you do pronounce it, you don't even know what it's used for. But you know this, that if all that stuff is in Jesus, get it on me. I want that on me. And that's exactly what the call is of today's text is we must persistently apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to every area of life. I don't care what the ailment, I don't care what the issue, I need to rub some Jesus on that. I need it all over my life. I need him. And I can't even define, spell, or detail the specific ways, but I know that if there is pain, if there is itch, if there is cut, if there is bruise, if there is burn, if there is a gap, I want the Neosporin. Or in our case, we want the Christ. We want the Christ. And so it is not mandatory that we have a master's in theology to fully appreciate great Christology. But it is mandatory that we be a people who are disciplined and quick to apply the Lord Jesus Christ to every area of life. When you look at um, these next verses here, the first two, it says, He is the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been made, created through him and for him. These first two verses simply remind us of this, that Jesus Christ is supreme. Whether it is things material or immaterial, things that are visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, high, low, heaven, earth, that Jesus Christ is supreme. And here it is. If Jesus is supreme, then he is over everything. Now, these sound deeply obvious, but guess what? Deeply obvious stuff on the screen doesn't become deeply obvious in the way we live. A couple of days ago... Um, I was uh, driving a vehicle from one location in town to another. 
uh, no license plate. Uh, it was a newly acquired vehicle and it was headed to the mechanic shop. And I was like, you know what? I'm close enough to kind of scoot through traffic and nobody will catch me. Hopefully I can get there. And I, I had some other credentials with me, like the title. And I would say, all right, officer, if I get pulled over, you know, here's, here's why I'm doing this. So anyway, so I'm driving the vehicle and uh, here I am, I'm coming down 285. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm going to get off any moment. And that wasn't the sound of cops, by the way. But, but, but nevertheless, um, this, this nondescript um, dark SUV with a special light package in the grill gets behind me. And I'm like, well, he's not turning the lights on. Let me just go ahead and get down to another lane and just prepare to get my, my defense together as to what's going on here. And uh, just as I move over, he whisked past. And I was like, yes, Walton County, nah, 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 nah. We're in DeKalb. You can't do anything to me. Now, while I felt some sense of joy in that moment, I later researched it that a police officer in another jurisdiction can give you a citation while in the performance of his duties. But this guy just decided to pass me by. But in reality, when it comes to the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ, this is how many of us operate. We have special pockets and places in life that we don't necessarily believe fall under his jurisdiction. This is economic. This is social. This is relational. This isn't spiritual. Jesus, I'll call to you. I'll pull out the rosary beads. I'll light a candle. I'll come to you if it gets really deep. But right now, this is my area of focus. I got this. And so the supremacy of Christ, it should be defined for us this way. There is never a time when Jesus is outside of his jurisdiction, nor in the active performance of his duties as the supreme. But if we look at ourselves in the mirror, or if we look at ourselves in many different ways, we do live as if he doesn't have total jurisdiction over all areas. This particular passage of scripture calls us to appreciate the supremacy of Christ as not just a high and lofty theological term, but a extremely comforting, but yet holding us accountable practical term. There is no place that I can go and God not be there or have active jurisdiction and supremacy. This is important for us to remember, whether it be spiritual, social, or physical. Now, many of us appreciate the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in areas where we want him to be everywhere. I remember having a car accident, um, not my fault, uh, in some lonely stretch on 85 between Montgomery and Atlanta. And it was on one of those stretches where it felt like it took an hour for the cops to get there. And so me and the other person are just kicking rocks and stewing and brewing, and we don't even care that we, we've messed up our cars. We're complaining about how long it takes the authorities to get there because they need to be there now. You see, when we have needs, we expect our authority to be ubiquitous, instantaneous, and consistent in their presence, but not when we're about to get a ticket. Do you hear that? We want Christ to be Johnny or Jesus on the spot, when our needs and our life is crumbling, when we've been rear-ended by some catastrophe of epic proportions, when we run off the rails and we realize we can't pull it back on the road, we want Jesus to show up at the scene right now. But we have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ being Lord before the collision in some cases. I'm preaching to myself as well. That's why so much of this is coming across hardcore. So please don't feel like that's all on you. I'll start filling in the blank with the word you with us. And so, but, but look at this though. Here's one of the great promises of scripture. You may not have this on the screen, but I'm just going to read it to you and you're familiar with it. It'll resonate deeply with you. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. What shall we say then about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? 
Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Uh, Who is the one who condemns us? Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, can anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day. We are sheep uh, headed toward the slaughter. But now this, know that we are more than victorious through him who loved us. We love the jurisdiction of Christ being everywhere as long as it's about applying that passage. We want to know that when I need an ally, when I need a confidant, an intercessor, somebody to not only unfold the wreckage but to pump up my flat tire, Lord, that's when I need you. I want you to be everywhere. But do we really want him as Lord in all of the ways, the fullness of what it means for him to be Lord? And so this is a question that we must ask ourselves. Why is it that we are so selective about when and where we want the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be applied to our life? When are those moments and why are we selective? I'll tell you. When there is a war of the wills, that is when it's my will versus thy will, Lord. When there is a battle of the flesh, when it's the old man versus the new man. When there is a collision of competencies, Lord, when I want total control and you need to sit in the seat and merely be a consultant, I'll try your ideas if mine happen to fail. It is in these moments that we choose to take life back and become our own authority. If you look at your life, the moments where you have and I have the greatest difficulty appreciating the supremacy of Jesus Christ is when we are not trying to enforce the same agenda, when we are not headed in the same direction. So again, the war of the wills, my will versus thy wills. But look at the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the night before he was crucified actually showed us what that looks like. Him having all power, having all ability, having all authority, chooses to submit to the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. When he asked that this cup would pass from him. Jesus and the Bible constantly tells us about this battle of the flesh, that we must reckon the old self to be dead and the new person to be alive. But what gives life to the new person, the new man? It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that gives it. And of course, when it comes to the collision of competencies, and I want control of my life, and Jesus to just be a consultant. It was Jesus who modeled for 33 years what submission among other options looked like. Does anybody recall the scene when Jesus was 12 years old and his mom and dad could not find him in the caravan of folks? They had been working the crowd and couldn't find Jesus for a whole day. They show up at the temple and find him and it was like, why, where you been? Don't you know me and your dad have been, your stepdad have been looking for you? You remember that conversation between, yeah, yeah. And what did Jesus say? He says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? But because I'm 12 and it's not time, he submitted to them. Jesus Christ killing it in the temple, got his degree in theology, knows exactly what he's doing and what he's talking about, chooses to submit to the supremacy of the Father. Jesus modeled for us every single modicum, every single tiny detail of what it means to live life, even though you might be fully capable, under the supremacy and leadership of someone else. He modeled it in his relationship with the Father. And therefore, he's fully qualified to call us to do the same. Now that he's seated on the throne, and he is the supreme one. So, if the supremacy of Christ is comprehensive, it's that comprehensive, therefore my surrender should also be. Simply put, all of that to say that if the supremacy of Christ is that comprehensive, 
then so should my surrender be. There should be no areas of my life that are not under the Lord's active supremacy, therefore no areas of life that are not on the agenda for active surrender. And if we want to do ourselves a favor, we should probably start to jot down the areas where I am least likely to surrender, because that means that it is a battle of flesh, a collision of wills, or some kind of competence issue where we want to be in control, but not the Christ. So again, he is supreme. What I've tried to do today is to boil down that entire list of 10 attributes and functions into three things, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme, sufficient sustainer. If you can remember that, you can remember a significant portion of that text in the book of Colossians, that Jesus Christ is the supreme, sufficient sustainer, and we must apply his lordship to every area of life. But let's look at our next two verses. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. Or in some verses, it says, in him, all things consist. Paul would say in another place that uh, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And uh, the Bible goes on to say it. And he is also the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have first place in everything. So here it is. If he is the sustainer. If Jesus is the sustainer, then he does not depend on anything else. Paul would put it this way over in the book of Acts, that the Lord, that, 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 that the Lord is not worshipped in temples made with men's hands or with men's hands as though he needeth anything because he gives to us life and breath and all things. The Bible wants to enforce for us over and over and over again that, that God is not dependent, that Christ is not dependent on anything or anyone else. Why is this important? Why is this, this isn't just a theological truth. I'm reflecting back to the, uh, the days of uh, VBS. Anybody remember this? Uh, the little song, uh, what was it, uh, Jesus, he's got the whole world in his hands. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you grow up singing that? I don't even know the rest of the song because I got stuck. He's got the whole world in his hands. And I used to, either in my coloring book or either something, I would sit down and go, those must be massive hands or either a tiny planet. And then I would continue to work through my little seven-year-old theology and go, well, if he's got the whole world in his hands, how big must his head be? Like, you know, you're just kind of working through it, right? I'm just like, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's holding it all together. Does he really, he, he's really got the whole world in his hands? Now, what that became to me, a, a very refreshing understanding as an adult, well, if he's got the whole world in his hands, if, if all things as we know them consist in him, that means that there is no issue that I could ever bring that are bigger than his hands. And as I truly soak in him as a savior, it doesn't call me to go to my coloring book and pick up the, and stay inside the lines when I get that little image from VBS. It should do something in my heart as an adult. If he really does have the whole world in his hands, if we really do live and move in, in him and have our being, if he really is holding it all together, that includes the evil. That includes the evil. Many of us, as we, as we, as we think about uh, the, the, the control of God, we think about his sovereignty and how he sustains, we think about it through the lens of when we get blessed. But the, but the beautiful thing is this, in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, listen to this. And if he, 
did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy for which beforehand were prepared for glory. On us, the one he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, the Bible tells us that the end game for God is to get glory in how he underscores and how he, how he holds the world. And why everything, everything, that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. It is always about his glory. Now, many of us can appreciate over in Romans 8, a couple of chapters earlier, when the Bible tells us that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes, right? We love that. But do we also love the fact that all things, including the ugly, work together for the glory of God? So those two verses must be heard in stereo to fully appreciate how it is that in him all things consist. Jesus Christ is a supreme sustainer. Sometimes it's hard to appreciate how individual setbacks actually fit within the game plan of God. Look on the screen here behind me. I want to show you something. Several years ago, we were up at FAO Schwartz. I think this is like, I don't know, December of 2008. I'm standing next to this thing, and it is over eight feet tall. I think this is one of these uh, uh, Harry Potter characters. What's his name? Hagrid or somebody? There's several double-digit thousands of Lego pieces here that are being held together. Now, what's cool about this is I don't know how conscious the individual Legos are in what role they play. They don't see themselves in the finished product. They just know that they are connected to others in some kind of grand design that is consisting within the excellence of the one who created it. Where I'm trying to take you is this. The finished product brings glory to the one who held it and pushed it together. But also, the finished product is good for those that are part of what's being held together. There is nothing in our lives, not a single solitary piece that is extraneous in the plan of God. He pulls it together, holds it together, and pieces it together in this beautiful finished product that we will more than likely only fully appreciate when we bow before him at his throne in the final consummation of the kingdom. But we must trust that if he is a sustainer, that this stuff that God is holding together, it is going somewhere really particular. And we want to place our faith and confidence in him so that our role is a part of the design positively and not negatively a part of the design. So the sufficiency of Christ, excuse me, the supremacy of Christ and the sustainability or the sustenance of Christ, the fact that he holds all the things together. He is both permanent in what he holds together. He is, he is not contingent on anyone else's assistance. And this is another thing. When we talk about the, the Lord who sustains and holds together as the head of the body, right? The scriptures tell us that we are members of the body and we are members in particular of which Christ is the head. And then we are told that we are brought together as a body saved for good works. Point of clarification, the supreme sustainer does not need our help, but he does want our hearts. He does not need our help but he does want our hearts. And so in a, in a world system that includes obvious evil, that includes people who are making all kinds of choices and things that don't seem to fit within the positive plan of God, it doesn't seem to fit. How can there be a God who's holding all this together? But the Lord says, listen, whether it be negative or positive, I'm holding this together. I am the sustainer, and I need you to trust me. Whether it is your greatest week or your worst week ever, I need you to trust me that I am the master artist, and I know how to hold this together. I am going somewhere very particular, and I am trying to produce something in your life, and I want you to participate. 
Can you think back in your mind about the, you, you pass by maybe someone's home and you see a small child sitting on the lap of a father or a grandfather? The grandfather is driving the, the riding lawnmower and the child is just joyously there with his hand on the steering wheel. That is the image of us in the work that we do with the Lord. He does not need us, but he desperately desires to have us to participate in what he's doing. He's trying to win our hearts, not just put us to work. And so as the Lord calls us in as the head of the body, all of the things that we go through are all about creating an, creating an appetite to see his glory and to hand our hearts over to him. We must expect regular moments in life where there are things that we cannot explain except Christ comes and gives wisdom. We should expect regular moments that we cannot overcome unless God himself sustains and reaches down. Because when he does that, our hearts are one. When we have options other than him and they seem to be working, our hearts don't belong to him. Just our hands and our heads part-time. But our hearts are totally one to him when they are filled with story after story of how no one could have brought me through that or brought me over that except it was the Lord who is sustainer and the supreme one over that. And so the Lord is inviting us to appreciate him persistently. Why do we say we must persistently apply Christ to every area of life? Not just consistently, but persistently. Because within us is the temptation to only apply him where we think he belongs. We must persist to plug him everywhere, regardless of where we think he belongs. We must persist to apply Christ to every area of life. The Bible goes on to say here in this same passage, this is interesting. He says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. So it is in Christ that we actually realize and experience victory over mankind's most formidable foe, which is death. I mean, any level of difficulty that you have in your life, it is just a derivative of sin and death wreaking havoc in the world. And so Jesus goes straight to the point in his resurrection when he is raised from the dead and say, now, the worst thing that you've ever feared, the biggest bully in your life has officially been whipped. Do I now have your heart? Uh, back in elementary and middle school, there was a guy named Lawrence Alexander. He doesn't listen to our podcast, so he don't care. And I'm probably bigger than him now. But um, Lawrence Alexander was a world-class bully. He had been held back two grades. We were probably in the sixth, which means he was the size of an eighth grader. He had already hit puberty, plus he had those extra two years of stature on us. And, you know, if, if Lawrence came to you in first period and was like, after school, me and you, you shook in your boots. I mean, you couldn't even eat. Your hand was trembling. You couldn't, you couldn't write because it was like, man, Lawrence trying to get at me. And so one time Lawrence did, uh, you know, come at your pastor. I wasn't your pastor at the time. But something, but that was a radical transformation. So first and second period, we were shaking in our boots. Third period in lunch, I got with my boys, and we fashioned a crew. And so after lunch, when I knew I had a substantial crew to could handle the bully, we weren't shaking in our boots. We couldn't wait for sixth period to be over, right? I mean, previously, we were going around corners and walking like this. You know, for this is first, second, and third period. I mean, fifth and sixth, we were like this. Yep, can't wait for school to be over, right? Because we're going to deal with Lawrence. We're going to deal with him. That is the kind of confidence that we should have in Christ. Recognizing that someone has gone ahead and handled the bully. 
Death is the biggest bully in our life waiting for us, and it's going to be a fight. But trust me, we're going in the parking lot with a backing and with a power that says we have already won. So when I, when I opened the door, I came out the door like this, Lawrence, <laughs> behold, you know what I mean? I got my boys with me. And this is how we should walk through life. When we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has already dealt with the biggest showstopper in human life, which is death and separation from the Father. He's already dealt with the bully. And therefore, even the nicks and the scrapes and the punches that are thrown in the meantime, we already know that the battle has been won because of our great sustainer, who is the firstborn from the dead. This isn't just theology. This is a call to great confidence and practical living. So, Jesus is the supreme, sufficient sustainer. I must ask myself the question, what other means am I using to try to create sustenance in my life outside of Christ? This is a great question for us. Jesus does not need my help, but he indeed does want my heart amid anxiety, shortages, fears, and our worst nightmares. He wants our hearts. He doesn't need our help. He wants our hearts. But let's take a look at verses 19 through 22. For God has placed, excuse me, for God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through his blood, the blood of his cross. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he who has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is the work of our God who is absolutely and totally sufficient. When it says that it pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell, in other words, the full force of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all that they do in the work of redemption, the Bible says the fullness of that is vested in the Christ. Therefore, Jesus would say these words to us, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's why Jesus could say these words uh, uh, to us in, in John 14, 15, and 16. He could say things like, I'm the bread of life. Because your deepest and your truest hunger is fully satisfied in me, that I give living water. Because true thirst, your deepest thirst is fully satisfied in me, that I'm the true vine, that your greatest need for connection and not loneliness and, 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 and intimacy, it is found in me. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who, according to this passage, who is the peacemaker, not just the bread of life and the living water and the true vine, but he is the one who makes peace. One of our biggest breakdowns in all of our lives, both between us and God and the people sitting on these pews next to us, and even the ones who didn't come because they are angry with us right now, is a breakdown in peace. And Jesus says, I am going to fix the biggest gap that has ever existed in your life. The biggest gap that ever existed is not between you and your uncle. The biggest gap is not between you and your spouse. The biggest gap is not between you and your brother-in-law. The biggest gap in relationship that anyone has ever encountered is between us and God, the perfect and the imperfect. The holy and the unholy, the fully righteous and the totally warped and unrighteous, the absolutely faithful and loving and the totally unfaithful and unloving. These are our descriptors versus God. And there is no peace between us outside of Christ. 
And so the Bible says that he is a great peacemaker and that he tears down this animosity that exists between us and God that allows us to have this great and awesome, fulfilling, satisfying relationship with the God the Father. And he is sufficient. And because he is sufficient, then we don't need anything else outside of him. We don't need philosophy, he would remind the Colossians. You don't need to, to, ask, to pertain to certain rituals. You don't need high and erudite knowledge. What you need is faith in the Christ because the Christ is Lord over the material and the immaterial. He is the peacemaker and he is more than that. The Bible says you are now reconciled by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless. Jesus in his work on the cross is not just passing out hall passes or warnings and just say you can scoot on by this time. He is totally reversing the curse that is against us. He is totally satisfying the wrath that is aimed at us. He is totally and completely transforming the animosity and the wrath that was pending from God toward us and turned it into peace, love, and an amicable relationship that has a kind of communion that is not found anywhere else outside of the Godhead. Literally, in Christ, we are invited to enjoy the same kind of loving communion that only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have historically enjoyed. That's the invite. It's not a secondary offering where God is just kind of not mad and he's going to let you be in heaven, but he's not going to talk to you while you're up there. Like, it's full-on peace. And it is per the sufficient work of Christ on the cross. A couple of years ago, I was uh, in an office building um, where I worked, and uh, I saw Arthur Blank come through the lobby. And so uh, apparently he goes to the same eye doctor as Elton John. You're like, where is this eye doctor at? Right? Somewhere in Marietta. We'll talk afterwards. But uh, sure enough, um, um, Arthur Blank's come on. First of all, Arthur Blank, we know who we're talking about, right? So owner of the Falcons and the, uh, what's the big soccer team? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So the Atlanta United and the uh, billionaire founder, philanthropist of Home Depot, right, that Arthur Blank. So comes in the lobby, boom, he's just walking through, doing his thing, going to get his eyes checked or whatever. Now, I want you to just imagine for a moment, um, you and I now recognize his name, and we recognize his great work, and we recognize his resume. But that recognition doesn't do a whole lot for us. But let's tighten the relationship just a little bit. Can you imagine if uh, Mr. Blank was not just known to us by name recognition, but maybe we got his number on our phone? He's a family friend. That changes life a little bit, doesn't it? Just amping up the relationship a little bit. Now it's like, might influence where I sit when I go to the stadium. But let's amp up the relationship again. Let's say Mr. Blank is now my boss. It just changed the game again. It's doing more than just a, a casual conversation in the elevator on the way to the eye doctor. It's like, why aren't you at your desk? It's, it's, it's. Oh, there's, there's the boss. He's walking through. It's not just a casual, hey, how you doing? But it, it, it's not fan-based. It's now like there's, there's a certain sense of accountability. But let's turn it up again. Let's say Mr. Blank is our blood relative. He is my father. Now, all of a sudden, the game has radically changed from just name recognition, great works in history and philanthropy. When he goes from just name recognition to actual blood relationship, something radical just happened. Things that used to be free will choices, they're still choices, but they just became absurd, like being a Saints fan. Does that make sense? Like showing up at the family reunion with, a, you know, with, with some soccer jersey on other than Atlanta United, 
That wasn't just a fashion choice. It's mine to make. But that's crazy. Why would you do that based on who your dad is? My inheritance just changed. I mean, like when I, when I, now, like, like when I make subtle choices in life, like where I shop for wood, screws, and, and, and paneling, I dare not go to Ace or, or Lowe's. I mean, I'm blood, my, my dad is Arthur Blank. But notice how the strength of that relationship and the size of the individual and their respective power and capacity just by being in relationship radically changes the game. On things that would be ordinary, benign choices, we have now been put in a position where we can make different choices, but there is something compelling about the relationship that says, "Uh uh-uh, we won't do that. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in blood relationship with the all-supreme, sufficient sustainer of the universe? Doesn't that call us to a little bit more than name recognition, historical appreciation of resume? Does that not not call us into a deep, rich level of accountability? Yeah, I got free will, but man, I got a relationship that is now contextualizing some of the choices that I make. And not that, you know, I'm I'm thinking Mr. Blank is going to boot me out the will, but it's just out of respect for the relationship. There's certain things that I will not do and certain things that I will absolutely do. This is the same call that we have from the Christ that once we become absolutely convinced that he is truly the all-supreme, sufficient sustainer, it radically challenges and changes my choices, my preferences, my focus, and my ideals. And so I believe that the Lord calls us that same place that when we really are in him. So, so again, if all my needs are met in him, then all my allegiances should likewise Go to him. Does that make sense? If Arthur Blank is my daddy, it ain't just a new wallet. It's a whole new world of choices that change how I roll. But how much bigger is the Lord Jesus Christ who bought us with his blood than a mere Arthur Blank? How much more should our sense of accountability on one hand, but yet love, compassion, familiarity, but not to the point of contempt, how much should it radically change? I want you to just kind of soak in what we've talked about today. These, these, yeah, a list of 10 to 12 different attributes and ideas, but really broken down into three. If Jesus Christ is supreme and there's no area in my life that's outside of his jurisdiction, if Jesus Christ is, is sufficient, and there's not a single need that I have that cannot be addressed in him. If Jesus Christ is a sustainer, and that even when there are negative things that I would never wish on my worst enemy that might be happening and piling in my life, I have this confidence that it's all working out for, for both his glory and for my good. If that's who I'm in relationship with, it should change. It should change how I live both in the seen and in the unseen categories of my life. Here's a couple of areas that I'd like for you to consider. As a product of today's message, if you're in Christ, if you've placed your confidence in this person we just described in the scriptures, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us. There are unseen areas, the, the things that may not be visible to anyone else in this room. What we're saying, Lord, I haven't let you into that. I haven't applied your lordship to that yet. Whatever that one thing or that two thing is, if you can handle three, go for it. But can I just challenge you and ask you to locate and identify that one area 
invisible to all of us, but fully known to you, where you have yet to let Jesus consistently be supreme and to be the sustainer and to be your sole source, only sufficient supplier. Think about that one area. And then I want you to think about this. For us as a church, in a, we wanna do something together. In terms of the things that are seen, one of the things that we wanna do is be a, a church that is extremely generous in the way that we impact the world for the gospel and with the gospel. One of our core values is to be uh, generous stewards. We believe that the, the Bible calls us that, that as much as has been given to us, that we should in turn recognize that we are being fueled up to then be generous in the lives of others. And so collectively as a church, the Lord has allowed us to experience, you've seen the numbers on the screen, man, when we've stood up maybe like a global missions offering or like a local missions offering or any other thing, I mean, the Lord has been extremely generous to us and you have been extremely generous in return. The ask is this, quite simply, one area invisible, one area visible. I would ask you to begin praying about an area in your life, a visible area, a material area for us as a church family. Is the Lord really ruling in the area of our generosity? Soak in that and I want you to think about that. In the coming weeks as we continue to talk about Christ being above all, Think about those two areas, both the visible and the invisible. We as a church, we wanna, we wanna do something that we've not done before. We wanna exceed some goals that we may have put down for ourselves, but we wanna say, Lord, you are sufficient and you are supreme, and we wanna see the gospel go here, we wanna see the gospel go there. We wanna plant churches, we wanna send missionaries, we wanna stand behind people who are doing awesome and incredible work, and in order to do that, we wanna be generous without any sense of hiccup or pullback. And we want you to join us in that. So would you, as you're praying, both about those one or two areas in your life, consider what's that invisible thing that, Lord, I need to hand over? And then would you roll with us as a church and saying, Lord, how can I be generous in a way that fully reflects your Lordship over my life? So we'll have more details to come and just kind of future messages about how to advance kind of both of these um, uh, in our lives. But I want to give an opportunity now for those who are just kind of praying through and, and thinking through today's message. And you're saying to yourself, Lord, that was a lot. But if I walked away with anything, you are supreme and you are sufficient. And I want to know you like that. And I don't. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. Our lives are littered with all kinds of things that are competing for the throne of our hearts that are competing with, 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 with what we would say is supreme. There are all kinds of things that are grabbing at our allegiances. And we, Lord God, want to hand over our whole lives and we don't even know where to start. But we know to start here by placing faith in you. Lord, we ask you to identify for us areas of our life, both the material, the immaterial, the seen, the unseen, the visible and the invisible, Lord God, spiritual and even practical and social. Lord God, we ask you to show us how we can be and how we should be responding to you, worshiping you, Lord God, with our practical lives as the Lord who is supreme, who is sufficient, and who is our sustainer. This is our earnest prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. We serve a God who loves us, we, he doesn't need us, but he wants us, amen. 
And he went through a lot to reconcile us back to him, those who don't deserve his love, right? So if you could stand with me, we're going to sing this song about how awesome God's love is. Amen. in my sorrows 